Um, we sat on Good Friday and we came here and, and Good Friday is the single day on the Christian calendar where no Christian is supposed to be happy because it's so terrible. And we call it good because it's horrible. But in its horribleness, good came out of it. And so we came here on Good Friday and we just got used to sitting and suffering like the people at the cross, sat at the foot of the cross. And it's uncomfortable, but the lesson of Good Friday is that those people didn't have resolution. They didn't have Easter at that moment. And so they sat at the foot of the cross. And at first they just sat in suffering with God. We talked on Good Friday about how that's how God first meets us in anything that we suffer. He meets us in the suffering before he ever turns into our savior from that suffering. We first know him as someone with us in suffering before we ever know him as the person that takes us out of that suffering. And often in that suffering, we don't know when the end is coming. Most of the disciples and apostles, they didn't know when Easter was coming. They didn't know if Easter was coming. Most of them went into this thing completely confused and disoriented. The guy we thought was going to change everything is now dying. And so that's where we ended on Good Friday. Saturday, uh, called Holy Saturday, sometimes called the Great Sabbath. That's a day where usually the church, you wake up and in the morning, it's like you just, the shock is kind of worn off and it's almost like depression has come in and, and you're really, it's a sober time where just the gravity of what happened the day before is now sinking in. There's almost a numbness when it's first happening. This can't be happening. This can't be happening. And by the next morning, this really happened. And so the church sits in this soberness on Saturday morning. But by Saturday evening, because the church knows what's coming, it's almost like our excitement for Easter can't be contained. We know that the, the first disciples and apostles of Jesus, they didn't know Easter Sunday was coming, but we do. And so by Saturday night, the church starts to hold a, a, a lightened up atmosphere. They, they have a dinner and, and everything starts to get happy because they know what's coming. And it's almost like Easter is such a big deal that we can identify with the disciples and of apostles of Christ for only so long. And it's a great practice to identify with them, but it's like, we, we're like, we know Sunday's coming. And so we just can't hold off anymore. And Saturday night traditionally is when the church starts to begin to celebrate Easter. They just know it's coming. And so we're going to jump into Easter and we're here. It, it's, it's a great day. And the first passage that I want to look at is John 20 verses one through eight. I'll read them to you. Now, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw the stone had been moved away from the entrance. So she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to these two, they have taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out to go to the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb first. 
he bent down and saw the strips of linen cloth lying there at the tomb entrance, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter, who had been following him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been around Jesus' head, not lying with the strips of linen cloth, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, came in, and he saw and believed. So in case you didn't know, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the other disciple. And the first thing you have to love about Easter morning and the Gospel of John is that he takes the moment of Easter morning to tell, I was faster than Peter. <laughs> I ran faster than Peter. I made it to the tomb first. And he reminds you, he says, I ran faster. I got there first. Peter went in first. But then the disciple who got there first went ahead and went in. So the first thing that John does in his telling is that I'm faster than Peter. It, it's been a, a historical idea that there was some competition between John and Peter. And so this is John's chance to kind of just say, yeah, I beat him to the tomb. But it's a big deal. It's an important deal. And I think for John, this is important for him to say, other than Mary, I was the first one that got to the tomb. I, I saw it first. Peter may have gone in first, but I saw it. I, I was there and I saw it first. And so what he got to see was, was what we're exploring now. And it's this day that, that life conquered death. It's the day that established hope for the world in the darkest of times. And so great are the implications of Easter that traditionally the church begins a 50-day feast of Eastertide today. It's 50 days of joy and feast. And so they, they have this chance of, man, this, this new thing happened. We're going to love it until Pentecost. This was a time that Jesus was with, the, with his disciples after he rose from the dead. And so it's a time of great joy. And one of the important things about Good Friday and why I feel it's one of actually the, the most important holidays is because it's only when you sit in the misery of Good Friday and you really feel God with you in misery that the importance of him in life really becomes more illuminating. It's often said, we, we know it as humans, it's often said the sweet isn't so sweet without the bitter. Things aren't so bright if you didn't have darkness. And so there's this idea that um, if we didn't have Good Friday and we as a church did not continue to recognize that, Easter would lose a little importance. So now we turn to joy. One theologian says of Easter, when hope in person surprised the whole world by coming forward from the future into the present. That's how he describes Easter. Hope came forward from the future to meet us. Where we're turning to, because we've been going through the signs of John, we're gonna look at Easter as a sign. Jesus called it a sign and so this is actually going to be the eighth sign in the Gospel of John. The first half of John we talked about, it's called the Book of Signs, and there's seven signs that take place. 
But Jesus references a sign to come. But that sign doesn't take place until the second book in the Gospel of John. It's the second half, and we call it the Book of Glory. And so this one sign, the eighth sign, is contained in the second part. And so I want to look at what Scripture says. This goes back to John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And this is where the sign takes place. This is where the sign is mentioned by Jesus. Jesus had just cleaned the temple out. He said, you guys are robbing people. You are selling these animals at a premium to poor people. You're turning the temple into a place to get rich. And so Jesus just cleaned out the temple. These Jewish leaders come up and they say, whoa, whoa, whoa. what's going on here? And so starting in verse 18, it says, so then the Jewish leaders responded, what sign can you show us since you're doing these things? Jesus replied, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up again. Then the Jewish leaders said to him, the temple has been under construction for 46 years. And are you going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking by the temple of his body. So after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the saying that Jesus had spoken. So here's the eighth sign. Jesus begins to introduce us to it. These leaders come up to him and say, you're doing this. What, what's the sign that you have the right to do this? And Jesus says, you'll see the sign. The sign will be in three days, I'll raise up a temple. What the Jewish leaders understood with the cleansing of the temple was not actually that Jesus was making a moral statement. They did not think, okay, is Jesus right? Are we, are we evil in this? Is Jesus wrong? Or do we feel justified? It was not a moral statement. They understood that Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah was being fulfilled by Jesus. And so their question to Jesus in our modern English might better say, since you're doing these messianic things, what sign will you show us that you're truly the Messiah? So what they're saying is you're acting like a Messiah. What sign are you going to give us that you really are the Messiah and not just an imposter? And Jesus says, destroy this temple. In Greek, it's an imperative. Jesus isn't saying, well, if you destroy this temple, I'll show you a sign. You'll see me raise it up in three days if you want to. Jesus is really, and I love how Jesus confronts people through, through scripture. He does it in an eloquent way, but it is oftentimes a slap in the face. What Jesus is saying is, do what you're going to do and get your sign. In other words, keep going where you're going and you'll see what happens. And so they're trying to act out of indignation. Who, who are you? Where's your sign? And Jesus says, yeah, you'll get it. Just keep going where you're going. And the words of Jesus have this double meaning. First, the temple in context is the one he just tried to clean out. And so in context, when he says, destroy this temple, 
What he's really saying is this one right here that you have that's supposed to be the temple of God, keep on doing what you're doing. Keep on destroying it. You are destroying the building that God is inhabiting. You are destroying the temple of God. Mark looks at this in his gospel because he talks about Jesus' words as saying, this temple will be destroyed and I'll raise up another one in three days. And so in one sense, Jesus' words say, metaphorically, keep doing what you're doing over there and destroy this one. I'll raise up a new temple of God. It's going to be the temple of God still, but it looks different. It's now Jesus. So that's one sign. John loves these linguistic intricacies. And so that's one way to interpret Jesus' sign. And that's supported by Mark in his gospel. But the other way to interpret the words of Jesus is that Jesus places himself as the temple. Not only is the physical temple going to be destroyed, but Jesus is now the, the center of the presence of God. Jesus is now the temple and he is giving them a sign. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. So there's two temples at play here, but there's a single temple of God. And so the language in John is this nice, intricate language that has these, has these subtleties that point to two things. Jesus, he bites back at people sometimes. Not in, not in a harsh way, but just enough to say, you know what, I'm going to give you a little bit of the truth. And if you want to accept the truth, you'll catch on to what I'm saying. An idea of this, just to let you know, is when um, coins are brought to Jesus and they say, should we pay taxes? And he says, well, whose image is on the coin? Caesar. Okay, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. The little subtlety that Jesus uses is, whose image are you in? You're in God's image. Give to God what's God's. And so Jesus plays with these little subtleties. And so here is a little subtlety of Jesus with the temple. He's indicating what they're doing to the temple that they had built, but he's also indicating what they're going to do to him as a temple. Even though the sign is a ways off, even though this eighth sign won't be fulfilled in the book of signs, John lets us know what happens with this sign. We've been looking at the different signs and some signs end in belief. Some signs end in no belief. Some signs end in this half-hearted belief. I'll believe as long as you fit my box. And so John lets us know that once the disciples are able to put two and two together, you remember he said that about the temple and being raised again in three days? We can put two and two together and now we believe in this little bit. It makes more sense. This is like the official's son. When the official got to meet his servants, they said, your son is, is better. And he said, well, what time did my son get better? And he put two and two together and it clicked. And he said, my son got better at the same time as Jesus said the words that he would get better. And so there is this time where you start to see fulfillment of things and belief emerges from that. And so even though the sign is a ways off, John lets us know it ends in belief. But what do we do with this again, right? When we go through things, it's meaningless if we can't make it personal to us. And so it's important to consider what, what does this mean to us? How do we... How does this change our thinking? How does this change our living? What do we do with this? 
the first thought I came to is that it's often only after I experience and live out certain things that the words of God are fully realized. It's what the disciples experienced. I think there's many things that we can now look back on and see the disciples didn't quite understand how things were going to work out. And it wasn't until things went a little bit further that they were able to reflect back and they found meaning in those words. Possibly even the disciples were like, he's going to raise a temple in three days? Let's just keep quiet. We'll trust him, but we're not quite sure what it means. And so here's the disciples. Uh, let's file that one away as we're not quite sure what it means. Later, they're like, oh, this is what it means. And so I think for us, when you read scripture as a kid, when you read scripture as a teenager, when you read scripture in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, as you're reading scripture and you start to see the words of God lived out and played out in your life, you start to begin to look back and you can see different meanings. And you can see where God speaks to you and where God brings scripture alive more and more to you. Just like it became alive to the disciples, just a little bit different when Jesus rose from the dead after three days. So that's the first thought that came to mind. Was that if I'm confused about something, as long as I have other things that are certain, let's keep on going and things will fall into place over time. The second thought that I came to is that Christ's resurrection was not the work that he did for us. The resurrection is not the work of what he did for humanity. It's the sign of it. Throughout every gospel, Jesus calls his resurrection a sign, not the actual work. Things took place beyond our earthly understanding. Things took place in the death of Christ and whatever happened during those three days that the church still argues about. We don't know exactly how it worked. We have ideas and when we debate them, but we don't know exactly how it worked. Christ's resurrection is our sign that even though we don't understand fully how it worked, it worked. And so Christ offers us this sign. I did it. And so here's a sign when we're not fully sure of of some things and having gone through, you know, Bible college and, and different degrees. Theologians love to debate. They love to argue. I do too. I, I call myself a Bible nerd. I enjoy it. I get into the debate. But at the end of the day, what we get from the story of the resurrection and the wording that Jesus gives his coming back to life is that it's a sign you don't have to fully understand. You may never fully understand, but this is the sign that it happened. And so that gives trust. That gives us the ability to, to trust that I can't see that other side of reality yet. But Jesus came back to this side of reality. He came back alive to let me know I took care of things. It's on the idea of this resurrection sign that I, I want to take our service today in Easter. I want to look at the story of wholehearted Thomas. You guys probably know him as Doubting Thomas. 
His story is told every Easter in the traditional church in the Eastertide liturgy. The story of Doubting Thomas is told in the Eastertide season. And so I want to consider the story of Thomas. Possibly in a way that you've never heard before. Thomas was one of the 12 apostles. And we first hear him speak in John chapter 11, verse 16. Jesus and his followers, they had to flee Jerusalem. They fled across the Jordan River because the leaders wanted to try to kill Jesus. So once they flee the persecution in Jerusalem, Jesus learns that his friend Lazarus has died. Lazarus lives within about two miles of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, I'm going to go back. I got I to see Lazarus. What Jesus really says is I got to go back and I got to bring him alive. And his disciples say, whoa, 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 whoa. You are going back into the danger zone. You're going back where they are trying to kill you. This isn't the smartest thing. And so his disciples say, Jesus, they want to kill you there. But Jesus is set on going. And so in John chapter 11, verse 16, it says, So Thomas said to his fellow disciples, Let us go too so that we may die with him. Here we see the level of commitment that Thomas has to Jesus. He, th he thinks Jesus is going to die, but he's like, I'm loyal to this guy. If he's going to die, we may as well die too. So here's Thomas's loyalty and his honesty. He doesn't say, we might make it. Let's go and, and hope. He's pretty resigned that we're going to die. So he's fairly blunt and honest, but he's also loyal to the death. The next time we see Thomas is at the Last Supper. Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet. John describes it as loving his disciples to the utmost. The idea is that even as he's facing death, he loves someone else rather than being self-centered. After he washes his disciples' feet, he gives them these teachings and the teachings are confusing to the disciples. The disciples don't have the hindsight that we do. But they all keep their mouths shut. Except for honest and brave Thomas. Thomas says, Lord, we don't understand. In Thomas, we see humility. In Thomas, we also see hunger. He, he wants he is all in with Jesus. And if he doesn't understand something, he's going to admit it because he wants to learn. And so in Thomas, the same bravery that would go die with Jesus is brave enough to admit, we aren't quite sure what you're saying, God. At this point, it's Jesus. And he says, we're not, we're not quite sure what you're saying, Lord. So here's humility. Up to this point, we've seen amazing traits in Thomas. Up to this point, if I just had this to go on, Thomas might come out as one of the top apostles of Jesus. 
while the major apostles that we often think of, Peter, James, John, while these other major apostles are silent and they're trying to tell Jesus they're going to kill you, Thomas is the one saying, we'll go die with you. Let's go. While they're silent, we don't understand, but we don't want to embarrass ourselves in front of Jesus. Thomas says, I'll speak up for the crowd. We, we don't understand. Thomas is a genuine guy. So now we get to the final appearance of Thomas. John tells us, after the resurrection, 10 of the 12 apostles have locked themselves away in a house out of fear. They're behind a locked door huddled together out of fear. And Jesus appears to them. John then says Jesus shows them his wounds. And then they rejoice. Thomas wasn't there with the ten. He wasn't there because he wasn't hiding behind locked doors. The gospel never associates Thomas with fear. It's an attribute that is associated with the other 10. While they're huddled, Thomas is out living. It doesn't sound like a doubting Thomas. It sounds like the Thomas we've read of so far. The brave one, the genuine one. He's out just living. He's been crushed with the other apostles. The guy we followed is dead. Got to move on. Got to be brave. At some point, Thomas and the, and the other apostles run into each other. Either Thomas came over to meet with the fearful huddled apostles or the other huddled apostles, they skulked out. Maybe they needed to get food. I don't know. But they, but they crept out. And when he meets the other 10 apostles, they tell him, Jesus is alive. Thomas says, I won't believe it. I need to see the same thing that you other 11 already got to see. Thomas became known as a doubter because he wanted to see the same thing we're told the other apostles already saw. They don't get blamed that they didn't rejoice until after they saw Jesus' wounds, but Thomas gets blamed because he won't trust what his friends say. But who can blame him? As I've thought about this, and you've seen how wholeheartedly Thomas was into the ministry of Jesus. Can you imagine the utter devastation that a genuine, brave, wholehearted Thomas must have felt when his world seemed to cave in at the death of Christ? Perhaps, and this is, this is what I've come to, to think as I read what little we have on Thomas. It was the hardest for Thomas to get his hopes up. It was harder for him than anyone else because he had bought into Jesus the hardest. He had been the most committed and he'd been the most honest with what he wanted to learn, where he was confused. 
And maybe for him, the death of Christ hurt more than any of the other 10 apostles because he was so genuine in his following of Jesus. So I can understand where Thomas might be coming from given what we've seen of Thomas's life. So over a week later, the disciples are still huddled away in fear. John tells us eight days later, we're over a week later, they're huddled together in fear and we see Thomas with them. Now we know that it wouldn't be fear that keeps Thomas with them because he wasn't in fear over a week ago. He was out and about. What I believe kept Thomas with them now was hope. Jesus appeared to you guys. Possibly he'll appear to you again and I want to be there this time. The 10 were there due to fear. And I think Thomas was there due to hope. And here comes Jesus. From the account of John, Jesus doesn't come angry with Thomas. He doesn't come in and say, really, you need me to come back so you'll believe? Jesus doesn't come in angry. He doesn't even make Thomas ask to see his wounds, according to John. Jesus comes and he knows exactly what Thomas needs. And John tells us that Jesus just comes up and gives it to him. He gives Thomas what he needs. The other apostles had gone through the same experience and they rejoiced to see the Lord. But Thomas is not a doubter. In this moment, Thomas turns into a prophet. The other apostles, they saw Jesus over a week ago. And they rejoiced that their Lord was alive. They saw a miracle. And yet eight days later, they're still locked in a room in fear, is what we're told. Thomas sees Jesus for the first time. And he proclaims, my Lord and my God. Wholehearted Thomas is back. Because he buys in with his whole heart, because he's genuine, he expresses and proclaims the first truth we see in the Bible clearly stated of Jesus's double nature, his humanity and his divinity. It's not doubting Thomas. Thomas reveals truth to us and is he gets to be the first one to tell us this truth that we then see carried into the early church. John chapter 20, verse 29. This is what's typically taken as a rebuke to Thomas. In this verse, it says, after Thomas touched the wounds on Jesus' hand, after Thomas says, my Lord and my God, after wholehearted Thomas comes back in to his belief. Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are the people who have not seen and yet have believed. This is often taken as a rebuke, but nothing in the story indicates it's that way. I believe Jesus was honored 
to appear to Thomas, his wholehearted follower, and give him the privilege of touching his wounds of love. But Jesus does simply state a fact. And I believe this is the point of John's story in this post-resurrection dynamic. This point is directed at you and me and every other reader of the Gospel of John who don't get to see Jesus. We can be jealous. I often think, my faith would be so much easier if I would have been with the Israelites and seen God in a pillar of fire and, and, and a cloud. And if I could have actually seen that, I, my faith would have been so much more solid and wouldn't have the struggles that I have now. We can often be jealous and think people were blessed to see these things. And what we find Jesus saying is, we aren't any less blessed than the apostles who got to see Jesus in person. He's saying, you believe because you saw. Blessed are those who will believe and they never got the chance to see. And what we see is that 10 apostles got to see Jesus and it didn't magically change their faith. They still stayed locked away for another eight days. Eight days later, they're still scared. It's our humanity. And so nothing magical happens if we get jealous of that moment. Why couldn't we have been alive when Jesus was on earth? We're all blessed. Thomas was blessed to touch the wounds of Christ. We're blessed to believe and we, we didn't get to live in that time. And there's a final lesson of Thomas that I'd like to close on today. It's an important lesson for our church, and it's a lesson that is symbolized by Thomas. Jesus bore the marks of his love. And Thomas didn't just need to see them. He said, I need to feel them to believe. And upon feeling them, he believed. The lesson to our church, I believe, is that there are a bunch of wholehearted Thomases waiting out there in the world. And while literal Jesus is not here to be paraded out for them to see, as we live like him, we as a church will bear his marks of love. And all who wish can come into the church and they can feel the marks of Christ's love. And like Thomas, they can get a chance to believe when they feel that love. This is one of my greatest prayers for this community as we emerge from COVID and we look to a new season. That as Jesus resurrected from Easter so long ago to carry the marks of his love, we would ever mature into this community where someone could come in here and say, I feel Jesus here. I feel the marks of Jesus' love in this community, and I believe.